Hello and welcome to the Sensibly Speaking Podcast. This is Chris Shelton, the critical thinker at large, coming at you for another hour of power here on the Sensibly Speaking Network with... Uh, well, let's see here. We're on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and with video here on YouTube. All right. So um, this is the second uh, re-recording I am doing of a show that I recorded with this guest a few, uh, I think a couple, about a month or so ago, and we did a great show. And then I totally screwed up and lost it and guess I'm an idiot. And so we are now putting that back together. This is something I have been wanting to do. We set this up. I mean, I've been working on this for a couple months. This has been a, uh, a, a topic, an area of interest for a lot of people who have been watching Scientology over the years. There's been questions about this, academic papers written about it. But, on, but I, so this is my dive into this. And this has to do with the occult. And it has to do with L. Ron Hubbard and his involvement with the occult. Um, I did a podcast with Joe Zimhart that was uh, just posted a couple weeks ago where we dived into Madame Blavatsky and the history of, um, you know, a lot of the thinking and philosophy. Well, this whole podcast is going to be about the, the manifestation of some of that through Aleister Crowley and through the OTO. The Ordo Templi Orientis, the Temple of the East. And what I've got here is a great, this is just this is just so awesome. I'm so happy about this. So Marco Visconti is somebody who has actually been involved in the OTO, is uh, a believer in magic, and is somebody who understands it and has actually even advised... Uh, there was a show called Dark Angel. It went for two seasons on CBS All Access. And if you haven't seen it, you might want to check it out. It's a little weird. But it's all about Jack Parsons. And we're going to talk all about that Jack Parsons in this show. So you're going to learn all about this stuff. But he actually advised on that show for the OTO stuff. So, Marco, welcome to my show. Uh, thank you very much, Chris. It's a pleasure to be um, back, I would suppose, <laughs> <laughs> even if um, none of, none of, of, uh, of the listeners uh, know. But yes, we've been, as you said, we've been here before. Um, yeah. Um, where, where do we start? <laughs> yeah, right. Okay. Well, we're going to get right into it. So I... First off, we, I guess we should start with um, we're gonna we're we're gonna be talking history here, and we're gonna be talking from the nineteen. The concentrated area of attention is the nineteen forties, mid nineteen forties, when L. Ron Hubbard stumbled into Jack Parsons' home in Pasadena, California. Which, by the way, I love throwing this factoid out whenever this comes up. I grew up five minutes away from this place. I, I in in Pasadena, uh, we bought our first house right around the corner from this. I, I think literally less than two miles away, and um, and so I I didn't even know, you know, I didn't even know. Um, anyway, so uh, this is this is when L. Ron Hubbard stumbled into Jack Parsons' lodge or home or mansion. It's been described various ways, and became involved in. Um, well, a whole world. So let's go ahead and get into that world. So first off, Marco, um, let's go ahead and let the audience know, because I usually start with lead with this. Who are you and what's your experience with this topic? Okay. Um, um, 
I, I was drawn first to, uh, to the occult, to magic, and to the specific kind of magic uh, that Aleister Crowley founded um, in my teens. Uh, I was, so let's say I grew up with it, which is something different than um, what a Scientology grew up with, because as we will see, there are no precise structures in, uh, in, this, in, in magic. And specifically, the, the term we're going to use a lot is Thelema. Uh, thelema is, you can say Thelema the same, way, the same way you say Scientology. Let's say that's the philosophy, that's the, that's the system, okay? Um, I grew up with it, and uh, at the end of my teens, I was initiated for the first time in uh, one of one organization, one order called the AA, which, as I like to always to joke about, is not the Alcoholics Anonymous. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but let let's say it's uh, it can be it can be uh, trans that that name can be understood as Argentum Astrum, which means the Silver Star in Latin, and. Uh, that was the, the AA is was the first order, the first organization that Aleister Crowley uh, founded in 1906, 1907. Um, and the the best way I can describe the AA is imagine like Hogwarts, okay? So more or less, for those of you uh, who have read Harry Potter, and I believe there are many. Um, the but but, the, but probably without the Quidditch. <laughs> yes, probably without that. Without exactly. the Quidditch, okay, damn it. Definitely, yeah. def def I... definitely without the Quidditch, unfortunately. Um, yeah. there, there are ways to fly, but not, not with a broom. <laughs> Let's put it like that. <laughs> oh, yeah, I can, I can, I can fly once. <laughs> <laughs> so um, I would say, like, yeah, to, to fully explain what I'm, what I'm uh, relating to, um, in many ways, the inspiration J.K. Rowling got, you know, for the idea of the magical schools comes from uh, the Victorian revival of magic. Um, and that is, you know, the time that goes between 1875 with um, the theosophy of uh, Blavatsky that I guess you already touched upon, up until the Edwardian era, the 1910s, 1920s, where there was a lot of interest in Europe, especially in the UK here in London, where, I, where, I'm, where I'm based, uh, on this uh, these groups, these orders, these schools where you could go and learn magic. Um, without going too much into detail, DAA was the continuation of another famous order called the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn, at least in Crowley's mind. Um, Crowley was a member of the that, Golden Dawn. Let me, let me say that slowly for everybody and make sure that's the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn. Exactly. And that came out of Germany, right? Uh, the, gold, the, the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn was founded here in the UK by three Freemasons. Um, and they oh, in the UK. Okay. Yes, yes, in London. But they claim that the, uh, the inspiration came from Germany. Uh, right. As, as you can imagine, this is like, this is a sprawling network. So I'm trying to be, uh, let's try to be as focused, as focused as we can, even if it's like you, I'm pretty sure that people in the comments below will, especially though we know will be, will go and nitpick here and there. But unfortunately we need to try and be focused. <laughs> let's say yes. that for the, for the sake of simplicity, uh, it was born, it was founded here in the UK, in London, with inspiration from Germany. Uh, Crowley was a member of it. Um, and then he got um, 
you know, let's say um, he got entrenched into sort of political plays inside the order and he got expelled after a very, uh, very famous, uh, you know, battle, Blythe Road, whereby he was thrown down the stairs by somebody that was actually sent there by William Butler Yeats, the famous poet. And this already should let you know that and let the listeners understand that back in the day, the mindset was really, this is real. Uh, this is respectable, really famous, respectable people are part of it. Um, that was the same thing with Freemasonry at the time, and uh, I would say it still is. Um, so yeah, to, just to give you an idea, members of the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn were, like I said, um, William Butler Yeats. Uh, there is Conan Doyle, it's said to have been a member. Uh, Algernon Blackwood, another famous writer, was said to be a member. Or famous actress of the time, Florence Farr, was a member. And just to give you an idea, Florence Farr was so famous at the time that right now it would be like, I don't know, Taylor Swift would be a member of something like that, you know? And, and be very open about it. To be very open, like, no, this is what I do, this is what I believe in. Sort okay. of, so, or maybe a, a, a real example might be Madonna being involved with the Kabbalah. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Or Tom Cruise uh, in Scientology. Yes, yes, pretty much, okay. pretty much, absolutely. All right. Um, but uh, like I said, this is uh, this is pretty much like what happened before uh, the other the other order came into into the fray, and that is right. the the OTO or Ordo Templi Orientis. Now the OTO. Um, wasn't was not uh, founded by Crowley. It was founded by an, by another group of Freemasons in Germany uh, at the turn of the 19th century. Uh, sorry, the, of the 20th century. So around 1902, 1903, um, Crowley became a member of it a few years later, and then in 1912, he was uh, let's say invited to be part of what's called the Sovereign Sanctuary of the Gnosis. That the, the top level, let's say, uh, the top dogs of the organization, because the then grandmaster Theodore Royce uh, alleged that he already knew the magical secrets of the ninth degree, which is the the the, big, the highest level you can go, pretty much. Whereby you, I'm sorry, I just want to clarify. So these this was a group now, or these were groups now that were sort of modeling themselves on that old Masonic. Yeah. idea and this came and i think this was also blavatsky had had her hands in this of the idea of levels of ascension or levels of indoctrination and that these are these become secret levels or there's even confidential levels and this is yes. the roots of what i mean this is really cool i love learning about this stuff we're talking about this stuff because this is the roots of why scientology has a bridge to total freedom it's the same Absol modeling Absolutely and, it's, absolutely, and it's not original at all to L. Ron Hubbard. It was just he finally, you know, oh yeah, I should do what they did, you know. So anyway, just just wanted to throw that out there. No, no, you're absolutely right, and uh, we will see, I guess, at the end of, of this this chat we're having, where that, that, that Hubbard really did not invent much. Uh, right. <laughs> he, let, let's say he, he was he was um, vastly inspired. Uh, let's not say that maybe, or maybe he straight up plagiarized. <laughs> right. A lot did of he, ideas. Did he, did he reboot the OTO or was it a reimagining? Hmm. Uh, well, yes. we don't know, right? <laughs> right, right. I, 
Um, I mean, as, as an ex-Scientology, maybe you can, t- I don't think that y- you guys were ever told any, like, any, anything like this, like that there was oh, some no. sort of, absolutely. <laughs> so. No, no, no. Everything Hubbard did was his own thing. It was all his invention or discovery, <laughs> this, blah, course, blah, course. blah, yeah, et cetera. All right, I please was, carry on. Yes. Thank you. Uh, so let, let's say that. So now we are now in 1912. Crowley is invited in the which is yet another organization. And I'm, I'm speaking about this different organization because I think it's important for the listeners to understand that there's a diff- that there's a lot of similarities in Telem and Scientology, and we will see them. But the difference that I'm trying to outline here is that there is not one organization for Telema. Telema is, you can say Telema is Christianity, Telema is Buddhism, Telema is Hinduism, but then there are several organizations that kind of two different things actually. For instance, like the AA, the Argentum Astrum, is more like a, a, a mystical school where you learn like the nitty gritty on how to travel into the astral plane. <laughs> Whereby the OTO is more Amazonic structure that should allegedly teach you the, the brotherhood of men and it doesn't by the way, <laughs> and, uh, and it, will, it should prepare you by going to that um, that ladder of, of, the, of degrees, which is very similar to the, you know, the bridge to uh, eternal freedom uh, in Scientology, should prepare the initiate to work al- sex alchemical secrets. So they're, they're, it's similar but different. Of course, uh, I, just, I just wanted to throw, throw that out because you cannot say that um, you know, the, the OTO is the whole of Telema or the AA is the whole of Telema. There's a, lo- there's a lot of like, it's very multifaceted. And I guess this is where it's different. Uh, with so kind of, it, would it be a, an accurate analogy to compare it to denominations of Christianity? In many ways, um, yes and no, because everybody who's, if somebody is a member of the OTO, they, you believe the same thing as somebody who's a member of the AA. Most of the times, this membership overlap. Not all the time, most of the time. Uh, the, it's different what you do, what you gather to do, okay? Uh, okay. Let's say the, the OTO teaches you specific uh, rituals, whereby the AA teaches you different kind of rituals. And uh, I guess to go in more detail would be just too, too technical. So I, no, no, uh, fair, <laughs> fair enough, fair enough. And I don't want to try to overcomplicate or overburden everybody. We're already throwing a lot of stuff at them. I just want to um, I, I want to provide decent analogies that they'll get, and I think this is an attic a, a, a decent one. Um, but there is also the fact that while they draw on this philosophical base of Thelema, there are different interpretations of those beliefs oh, from absolutely. one person to the next to the next. I mean, they don't. Absolutely. This is not a solid, rooted base of agreement that everybody's on the same page with. Absolutely I think not. as we're going to see. So, okay. So fair enough. Just wanted to clarify that. No, in fact, um, the, what every, what every telemite should agree on is into reading and trying to understand the book of the law. That is like the, the text that, uh, Alistair Crowley received, uh, in 1904 in Cairo. Uh, interesting today, 8th of April is the, uh, 116th anniversary of the reception of the book of the law. So, <laughs> Yeah, exactly. So, well, the universe confluenced to to do this podcast. (laughs) It it, it synchronized once again, apparently. (laughs) There we go. Um, But like you said, there's 
there will be as many interpretations of the book of the law and 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 thus of telema as telemites are there are out there crowley always tried to tell people that everybody should go back and and listen to what he had to say but to be fair he also insisted that people should find their own wills and uh, and do that uh, over the years as this organization devolved uh to the state where where in which we we found them in this day and age which is very uh very pathetic to be fair uh you will see that there there's a, a lot of um people at the top that trying to establish their own their own gospels and uh, not many people follow them to be fair uh but we're, we're going ahead of us so let's go back sure, to, sure. to let's go back to history uh yep. so 1912 audio uh, crowley um, becomes like one of the, the members of the sovereign sanctuary, so one of the, of the leaders. In, 1920, in, in the 1920s, uh, after Theodore Royce dies, he becomes the worldwide leader of the OTO. And I guess that that was the time, imagine that that's between, you know, between World War I and World War II. Uh, Crowley was trying to establish the law of Telema across the world as, in fact, Crowley, and I guess we Telemites really do believe that Telema is the next um, should be should be like the next bigger bigger philosophy, bigger religion, uh, like Christianity is today. Um, some of, some Telemites will understand that as Telema being anti-Christian. For me, it's the it's the obvious continuation of the Christian message, which is it's something that will be will will sound weird to many people, but that's that's my perceptive perception. Uh, but the point is that so Crowley was trying to establish it as this, in many ways, the new Christianity. And at the time, what's the what's the the best um, I would say blueprint for um, fraternal organization? It's Freemasonry. So he, he he founds himself at the head of a paramasonic organization, the OTO, and he tries to really like invest into it. Uh, he wouldn't succeed. <laughs> the OTO has been a huge failure um, because nobody really bought into it. It was too weird for Freemasons. That's the reality of that. Uh, there's a fantastic book, which is unfortunately, unfortunately is out of print and it goes for crazy amount of money called um, The Unknown God by Martin Starr. Martin Starr is a Telemite, 33 degree Freemason of the Southern jurisdiction of ancient and accepted right, Scottish right, uh, in, in America. He lives in Chicago, I think he still lives in Chicago. He wrote this fantastic book about pretty much the DODO in the United States. And it explains in one of the chapter how at some point Crowley really had a chance because he had a way in with top level Freemasons in America, 33 degree Freemasons in America. But the point is in Detroit, but the point is that these Freemasons, after a few months of trying to work the system, they were like, this is too weird. This is, this is not Masonic. I mean, yeah, it does the, it, it feels Masonic. It kind of looks Masonic, but the message is too weird for us. We don't want to have anything to do with it. Um, and this is mostly because for Again, for the uh, for the listeners that maybe don't know it in detail, Freemasonry has a huge um, is based on mysteries and allegories of the Old Testament and then of the New Testament. Um, Freemasonry tells that every Sorry, man... I do, 
just to make sure everybody gets that were allegories allegories yes right. yes okay good uh yeah you when you when you join Freemasonry, when you want to join Freemasonry, you are told that a man of good you know of good stay uh, of, of good reports or good morals uh which means if if you're not a felon uh uh, you all, they all can join uh, regardless of their beliefs but the reality there is that's true but the reality there is that what you do in Amazonic Lodge is you study uh, um, allegories and symbologies based on the Old Testament for the most and in some points on the New Testament. Crowley changed that all completely for the Odeo and create an infrastructure of uh, Telema. So you know, the, the names were different, the stories were different. Yeah, maybe the actions were the same or similar, but, you know, for, for uh, Freemasons uh, in Detroit in the 1930s, things were like, nope, <laughs> this is way too weird. And, and that's it. The OTO stayed like that forever. Um, in the OTO that eventually I joined was a reconstruction of a reconstruction of a reconstruction, no matter, you know, no matter what they they tell on uh, to the outsiders on their website, um, lying about how many people are actually members. But that's something that happens from Scientology as well, I hear. <laughs> yeah, it seems to be kind of a thing for a lot of these groups. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Like the OTO today claims to have uh, four, between 4,000 and 4,500 members. There's less than 2,000 members worldwide, of which I would say 1,500 are not engaging <laughs> so you yeah, know exactly it's, it's more like an eighth of an eighth of the size one eighth, yeah. exactly uh, yeah. but but I, I would say right now it's even that eight of an eight of an eight it's way more than the actual membership of the OTO in Crowley's times in Crowley's times we're talking about maybe a couple of hundreds maybe at, at the most you know scattered so, so it was kind of a cult of personality for him absolutely uh yeah Despite me keep being a telemite and in the way like I like the finer points and since I am a practitioner of magic uh, and I, you know, I think that it works magically. Uh, and of course, uh, let's, let's me, let's me, let, let me clarify something here right now, uh, which I always try to clarify. Uh, magic is not science. Um, I don't claim that I can, you know, do anything that science can do. Uh, magic is more something it's something that allows you to look at the world with a different lens and maybe get some sort of insight from it uh i cannot fly um but i can invoke angels and demons so there's that <laughs> but, but uh, i'll take it <laughs> so uh, back to back to Crowley. like you know Crowley's sure. time Crowley's time we, we 200 people top and that's when you know the connection with Parsons and the connection with Pasadena and eventually with Hubbard comes to fruition because we're now moving the timeline a bit further still. And yeah. we're, we're now late thirties, early forties, World War II is raging. And believe it or not, the only active, and I would say thriving um, OTO lodge in the world is in Pasadena. It's called Agape Lodge number two. Agape Lodge number one was in Vancouver. Uh, and Agape Lodge number two is actually thriving, mostly because, uh, because of Jack Parsons uh, and uh, you know, the money that Jack Parsons brought to Telema. Because as uh, a strange angel, the, uh, the CBS uh, series that 
you know, it showed very well. Uh, Parsons, at some point, through his involvement with um, with the U.S. Army, you know, working on uh, propellant propellant uh, uh, fuel for yeah, for jets, and he he became a millionaire. He he, he would lose everything, uh, of course, as 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 usually happens. But I must say that he was very dedicated and he was actually, you know, funneling the money back into, into Agape Lodge and back into Dilemma. He was striving. Uh, they were, they were, they were doing it. <laughs> they were, they were trying to, to live the Dilemmic life. Imagine the, the, the idea of a, of a lodge at the time was what Crowley would actually call a prophet's house, kind of similar to the Abbey of Dilemma that he uh, tried to get to, to, to start in Cefalù in Italy in between 1920 and 1923. Uh, so, you know, it, it was it was like an interesting uh, hodgepodge of, of people coming from all walks of life, artists, um, LGBT people that at the time was, you know, they were they were very, it was difficult for, for them to be free and leave their, their sexuality um, free. Uh, but in 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 an lodge, you could do it because the lemma tells you that every man and every woman is is a star, and you have no right but to do your will. So, you know, if that that was very empowering at the time, for sure, for sure. And and according to Russell Miller's biography of Hubbard um, Parsons' place, which was a large house, mm-hmm. um, again described as a mansion by some in Pasadena, there was open to the. I guess what they would have called at the time this, or maybe they wouldn't have used these words, but I think it fits. You know, the the hippy dippy culture, the the yeah. fringe, the oh, you know, the 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 people that weren't particularly uh, wanted at the, all the highbrow social parties, uh, they'd show up. You know, and Parsons was also involved in the science fiction community. Uh, he would go to science fiction. He knew science fiction writers. He knew, you know, he would go to and have meetings and, and such with them. This is how Hubbard learned his name because Hubbard yeah, was absolutely. in science fiction writer circles. So just kind of connecting some dots there for people as far as some of my other earlier content that they might have listened to and where these dots, some of these dots start connecting. And we'll, we'll make it even clearer as we go. Absolutely. So it's it's definitely like the situation where you have this almost like this madhouse where everybody will just accept you for who you are, and the door is open at first because I said there was a lot of money uh, again in in the range of millions, uh, so there was like no problem. And then eventually, as as Parson became more and more erratic, and then eventually he ended up you know losing his contract with U.S. Army. Uh, that's because he needed lodgers. That's when Hubbard comes into into the fray because uh, Hubbard, you know, um, saw an ad on the newspaper that, w- that we were looking for, you know, crazy people to join their their commune and pay rent. Uh, and he shows up, and and that's and the rest is history, I would say, <laughs> because um, yeah, Hubbard was very dedicated. Um, it's interesting that you know. Almost no Scientologist knows knows about it because, of course, you know the church keeps it quiet. Uh, but yeah, I mean, Hubbard was full on into magical practices. He was full on into dilemma, and uh, and he, he became Parsons, you know, uh, right hand right hand man. Up until the moment that then, of course, eventually he would, you know, um, betray him and leave him with Sarah and the yacht and money. <laughs> but uh, yeah, they were, they became a team. 
So that that's it. <laughs> that's the story pretty much. <laughs> okay. All right, good. Now um we'll get more into what they were doing and I'd mm-hmm. like to now step back to uh we've thrown this word around Thalema. And you know, so we've got these groups that have evolved from the 18, you know, late 1800s, early 1900s forward. Um, and we've got this guy, Alistair Crowley. He's over in the UK. He stays in the UK. He is is uh, somebody Hubbard would later refer to as his friend, even though Crowley never met him, didn't like him, you know, etc. So, so these are the sort of the cast of characters in the background. So now let's go into what what is this? What were these? What were these people trying to? What were they believing and trying to accomplish? What okay. is what is Thalema? Um, Thelema, first of all, it's a Greek word. It's a Greek word that means uh, will, and that is, you know, the will to accomplish. Um, in many ways, it can be related on a philosophical level to the will to power of Friedrich Nietzsche. You know, the, the ability to, to know who you are, to discover who you are by working on, your, on yourself, working on your... Uh, on your ego in order eventually to you know exalt the ego to the point where it beca- you, be- you become almost like, like the best version of yourself that you could ever be and by doing that you become one with the universe of course i'm trying i'm trying to simplify the concept but that's what dilemma is that's the aim of this system it's to enable each and everybody to become the best version of themselves in uh, it all i'd say like telema can is synthesized in the book of the law which is this little book here yeah and, a little uh, tiny book you know i was really surprised i went and got that thing and tried to read it and i had a pretty <laughs> difficult time trying to make any sense out of that uh it is a received text it is a channel text um it is it is in many ways a cipher and um you will have you you, you can take like a, a lifetime of studying it and uh, only scratch the surface but i would say that the the process of engaging with this trying to solve this riddle trying to solve this cipher is what eventually enable you to work on yourself to get inside about who you truly are and eventually do your true will do your do who you're supposed to do do what do what you're supposed to do and be what you're supposed to be um so that's that's what telema is in in a nutshell uh i'd like to clarify maybe right now since we've brought up this point of will and doing your will that there's this fairly infamous quote from Crowley about do what thou wilt shall be the total of the law or the sum of the law. It says do what thou wilt shall be the whole of the law. Yes. Love is the and and then and then there's a, there's a counterpoint to that and that is love is the law love under will. Now that those two aphorisms along with the third one that says every man and every woman is a star they all found in the book of the law in the Liber Alva Legis and I would say. To me, those are the three aphorisms that encapsulate the system. Um, every man and every woman is a star means that each and every one has the, pot- the, the potential, the birthright to become a star. And a star means achieve you know, the best version of yourself, be who you are to be. Uh, 
in, uh, in more religious terms, if you want, it's almost say like you have the birthright to become your own God, which is something that's, that sounds very lofty, but that's, that's what magic should allow you to get to. Now about do what the will shall be the whole of the law. As you said, it's been, it's been considered, it's been read in many different ways by many different people. Uh, it does not mean do whatever you want. It does not mean, you know, just follow every whim, just do it for the sake of doing it, whatever passes through your mind. In fact, it is a very stern um, request. And that is, you must find your true will. You must do the, you must become the best version of yourself and do that. That is actually explained by the second aphorism that is love is the law, love and the will. Because the, the nature of, of that will is love. And uh, love, it's considered, not, it, it's not so much like the, the eros of the Greek, but more like the agape of the Greek. And that is a love for humanity, a love for the universe, uh, and a, a love for, for the all, as opposed of just like an, a self-observed, self-obsessed love, or even, even romantic feeling or even lust. It's a different kind of love. Uh, then, of okay, course, you know. So, so, so we're not talking romantic love. We're talking more about a compassion, an understanding, a, a, an affinity for everything. It's not just other humans. It's all life everywhere. Absolutely. The universe Absolutely. itself as an entity. Absolutely. See, this is interesting because that part definitely got left out of Hubbard's translation of this. If we're going to look at, you know, Thelema as a base of knowledge or a, or a philosophy upon which these various organizations have built their creeds and built their belief systems and even their Masonic levels. Scientology is really, in a way, uh, you know, I kind of cut into the spoiler right now, but in a way, um, uh, just another manifestation of this. Yeah, in many ways, in many ways it is. In many ways it is. Um, Except that Hubbard sort of carefully excised that whole business of love. I mean, he talks about affinity, but Hubbard didn't really believe in, in that kind of love. He demonstrated that in his own personal life, but also in the way that Scientology itself and, the, and of course, later on, the Sea Organization was put together. We don't have to get into all that right now. I'm just, I'm just kind of listening to what you're saying and, and, and throwing a little feedback out there because, um, because, uh, People have asked about this. People have wondered about this. I've wondered about this for years. What exactly is the occult connection between mm -hmm. Scientology and this earlier stuff he was involved in? And, some pe and of course, the church has poo-pooed all of it. Um, other people, former Scientologists even, go in and go, well, you know, yeah, he might have messed around with, you know, Parsons or something. But that, you know, this is all his thing. And and I think we're kind of already showing that, no, no. this wasn't his thing. This was very much a work of other people that he was simply taking and renaming. And even renaming, he didn't rename that well, because Golden Dawn, for example, is something that he led with. I mean, when Scientology came out in 1954, uh, 55, he's given lectures and under the, you know, rubric or umbrella of the Golden Dawn. Well, okay. You know, I mean, you can buy those lectures in Church Scientology today. They're a whole CD set called the, you know, the, the lectures of the Golden Dawn. 
Wow. You can look it up on 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 uh, Google. You know, it's at their Bridge Publications Warehouse site. You know, so I just I I have to draw these comparisons because um well they're fresh on my mind because they're they just pile up. There's so many of them as you're talking. No, absolutely. There 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 are counters of those. Um, I would say that. Hubbard was not the first person to appropriate the ideas of others. I would say the entirety of the Western esoteric tradition is somebody getting, you know, coming back and working on what came before, but then the, not, never really, you know, attributing the, the work that he did to others. I mean, Crowley did the, the, this exactly the same. There's a lot of, there's a lot of texts that you find in, um, in the AA curriculum or in the OTO rituals that are, straight up, you know, copied from the Golden Dawn, copied from other things. Crowley was very prolific, as Hubbard was. Um, he was a great writer, I believe. And he did, he did come with a lot of amazing uh, original material. But unfortunately, the, the reality is there. Like, I mean, what, what Hubbard did with, with the Golden Dawn and with Telema, Crowley did it with the Golden Dawn <laughs> and with something else as well, with Theosophy, with... Uh, with alchemy and with other with other uh, systems, um, but what's interesting to me, and you already you know touched upon, uh, the fact that you know the Church of Scientology completely doesn't even remotely discuss the these influences is to me it's absolutely like crazy because from an ex from an external viewpoint from somebody who's never who, i only read dianetics i i never i never sit sat down i was tempted many ways to walk in you know, in uh, Gooch street in london and just get you know the meter test because just to, ex to experience it but i never <laughs> i never did i read dianetics um, many years ago and then you know i got i got interested because of the parsons connection and you know from 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 a magician perspective it's like this is it it's just been repurposed almost almost entirely the system like the degree system it's it's a bridge same thing uh the oto levels sorry the OTO levels the OTO levels yeah, <laughs> right that's right i was thinking, I was thinking that's right yeah <laughs> i mean the ot levels oh okay um, we discussed this privately you know the concept of the thetan in scientology it's different from the concept of the holy guardian angel but there's a lot of similarities as well. There's 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 thing there's level there's point points of overlap. The the mass universe, you know, the matter, energy, space, and time universe, that is straight up alchemical. That is straight up magical. You know that that's that's it. Um, and then through you know when we when we were preparing this this chat, it, what, all the discussions about the affirmations came along, and that was oh yes. And, if, and, and I mean, maybe, maybe you can introduce it. And we oh, we're going to get to that. I've already <laughs> pulled them up. Yeah, we're definitely going to get to that. I wanted to cover this base stuff first. This and base, then, yeah. Yeah, uh, for sure. So, you know, uh, the back to Dilemma then, the, there's, there's like a series of um, rituals, the series of practices. Let me let me interrupt you because I realized I interrupted you earlier and I might have thrown you off of the you were mentioning three basic principles. And I remember we yes. covered the first two. And then I think I interrupted you because I said, yeah, Hubbard took the whole love component out. Yeah. What was what was the third one? I, I don't think I got that one. The third one is love is the low love on the will. That oh, is, that's that, the third that's, one. That's the third one. That's the okay. Third one. Absolutely. So the first so the so, first so, one was the. So the, yeah. Yeah, do, do what the do what the will shall be the whole of the law. 
Mm -hmm. uh, love is the law love and the will, and every man and every woman is a star. Those three. Are, oh, those were the three. Like, That's right. Okay. Yeah. Yep, yep. Those like the pillars to me, the pillars of Telema. Um, yep. It's it's. I think we were discussing the point that you know Hubbard eventually completely excised any reference to love, any uh, focus on love. And this is to me, to me is interesting because Crowley didn't. Crowley actually speaks of love again and again and again. The love of, of Nuit, the love, the love of Babylon, uh, the love as uh, this fundamental energy in the cosmos. Now, Crowley was every inch a bad person as Hubbard was. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> let's, let, let's not, let's not, um, let's not, you know, fool ourselves. Uh, Crowley was a terrible, terrible father, terrible, terrible husband, terrible friend, terrible everything. <laughs> um, I, I guess I'm one of the I'm one of the telemites out there that just don't like Crowley. I don't like Crowley at all, uh, but I, I like I like his work, and and this the fact that he he despite being a, like he was definitely a, a serious narcissist. I'm not sure as much as. I'm sure he was a malignant narcissist, like yeah, Hubbard, yeah. like like right. Hubbard was, but he was definitely a huge narcissist uh, with all the problems that that brings to the table. But he never, never, ever um, shied away from putting the focus on love as much as will. It wasn't just will; it was will and love. Those two were fundamental, and um, and that's why you know that's why for me the system is valid. Despite cruelly. Well, I think that we see Hubbard's intent, and this might help clarify a little bit why he, it would, you know, why he interpreted Thelema and Crowley's work the way that he did. Um, back in 1938, uh, if we're to believe the lore of all of this, and, and I have no reason to, to not believe it, Hubbard wrote a manuscript and he called it Excalibur or the Dark Sword or the One Command. And in that, and he refers to it in the affirmations, and he refers to it in other places. Even in the in the works of Scientology, he talks about this manuscript. It wasn't a, a hidden away thing that he had written this. The manuscript itself is very mystical, though, because no one's ever seen the goddamn thing. Like it's totally hidden away. Nobody's literally nobody's read this fucking thing. I I know I can count four people that I know who have claimed to have ever seen it. Um, well, and he wrote in it, or he wrote that it had quote freed you forever. The, the The work of this Excalibur manuscript would free you forever from the fears of the material world, and gave you material control over people. <laughs> and that's a thing that re, that's a recurring theme with Hubbard. He was big on control, and in fact, he. Um, he said in even in the works of Scientology as part of the indoctrination process that you have to get to a point where you can be controlled before you can control others, which sounds like some sort of, you know, Indian guru sort of statement of wisdom or something, but actually it's just complete nonsense. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, to me, that's like... Uh you know, cult mentality, cult control mentality, one on one. Like, let's com let's convince everybody to just be slaves. Now, uh, that's something else. That, you know, you find in Telema that in the Telemite is the one who's never a slave. So, a Telemite, uh, there's there's a there's a clo close in uh, the first degree OTO where you where you go through it.
that you basically swear that you will not subject you will not subject yourself to hypnotism or mesmerism or any other practice whereby your true will might be impaired which is you know so it's quite it's really quite, yeah yeah it's quite it's quite quite it's quite clear so i guess that uh, that's know, another thing hubbard excised from the materials oh, <laughs> oh absolutely uh uh, it's clear to me that you know, like he, he definitely, he definitely saw what worked, and uh, everything else he, he you know, is skirted around, and it's like, okay, how can I get away with the, with this idea? How can I get away with this other idea? So, so yeah, I mean, to me, to me, from what you what you just told me, like the, 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 this Excalibur system, which is very interesting, like only for people ever saw it. It's it's, it's something that I'm actually very curious to to see if I can find out somehow <laughs> but yeah it's not on the internet i'll tell you yeah. that it is uh the, the the actual physical copies of it only exist at the uh upper levels of scientology at the at the um l ron hubbard archives which are literally confidential location uh up in the hills wow. of san bernardino i think but uh you're not getting in there i mean they have that <laughs> like razor wire cameras armed guards i mean they take this shit seriously and that's where it's located so ain't nobody getting it but i've i i have spoken with um i know of three living people who have seen it and one person who i think has, has since passed who was uh, a fellow author in Hubbard's day who who spoke about it. Uh, I think his name was Arthur J. Burks. Um, I think that was the guy. Anyway, he wrote a little bit about it and said it was a weird book and it and it read weird and it kind of left you with this sort of creepy feeling, and uh, and this business of giving you material control over people that Hubbard refers to is is kind of the theme of what he's talking about. Well, you know what? That to me sounds like somebody only getting one message of magic because of course you know one big uh one big theme with magic is the con controlling the spirits right you know like the magician is the one who casts the circle and you know invoke or evoke the the demon or an angel and then controls it now there are ways i mean uh whereby magic should, could give you the, the this kind of um let's say ability but Quick, you 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 learn very quickly that it comes with costs that nobody really wants to spend unless you become you know almost like obsessed like like Hubbard was from what from what you teach me from what you told me. Hey everyone, most of us are sticking close to home for the time being, so if you haven't signed up for the Great Courses Plus yet. Now is the time to do it. The Great Courses gives me a window into real knowledge and understanding of the world that I just haven't found so conveniently anywhere else. It's hard to engage in critical thinking if you don't have the knowledge and resources at your fingertips to get the true data across a wide diversity of fields. With thousands of lectures from the world's best professors and experts, The Great Courses Plus is a great way for everyone to stay informed and engaged. Now it's particularly applicable since in order to get through these rather turbulent times, we need to understand our current situation with reliable, fact-based courses like an introduction to infectious diseases to learn about viruses, vaccines, and disease transmission, money and banking, 
what everyone should know to help contextualize the current stock market, fighting misinformation, digital media literacy to help interpret fact from fiction in the news. And then there's the kids who can use this resource to help learn about math, science, and history while they're out of school. You can also use this time to pick up a new hobby like gardening, cooking, or practicing yoga, even how to speak a new language. With the Great Courses Plus app, we can watch or listen at any time from a phone, tablet, or internet-connected TV. Now is the perfect time to get started. The Great Courses Plus is giving my listeners a free trial, and it's only 10 bucks a month when you sign up for a quarterly plan. Sign up today using my special URL to get started. Find all the details at thegreatcoursesplus.com slash critical. Remember, thegreatcoursesplus.com slash critical. This is actually very interesting because another thing that came out in our chats is the fact that, you know, Hubbard got inspired, let's say, from yet another uh, um, another. Um, tenet of magic, tenet of the lemon, that is, you know, knowledge and conversation with the Holy Guardian Angel. Like he claimed that he had like a guardian spirit, I think you yes. used to call it. Um, now, the, the the knowledge and conversation with the Holy Guardian Angel, it's, I would say, the, the first fundamental step, fundamental goal that everybody who sets up onto an initiatory path will have to reach. Uh, I would go even further and say that you you're not doing any real magic up until you achieve that specific state. Um, and I mentioned it before, like, you know, the solar consciousness state. Everything you do before, it's almost like going to the gym to bulk up before going to, you know, do the Olympics. Then, then, then at, so imagine like there's a lot of work that you have to put into, into this experience. There's a lot of preparation, a lot of dedication, a lot of will. And eventually you, this, you achieve this, con, this connection, which can be described in a myriad of different ways. Crowley himself, uh, Crow, during, the, during his lifetime, had very different and from time to time conflicting ideas of what the Holy Guardian Angel is. Just a little bit of history uh, for our listeners. The concept of the, of the Holy Guardian Angel does not start with Telema, does not start with Crowley. It's, it's a traditional idea in magic. That is that each magician, each initiate has um, a specific link with the divine, with the personal divine that once fully unlock, achieve, um, achieve and achieved, enables the magician and initiate to properly work the magic of light, the real magic that's out there. Um, let me so, let me let me just clarify one thing you just said, just for our listeners and for me. The personal divine. Mm -hmm. What? How is that a different concept from the grand divine? The you know the creator or angels or something like that. What's what is that personal divine? Um, the way I understand it, uh, and I always like to, you know, to explain, to tell that this is my, 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 my sure. ideas on the matter, because it, as I say, it's very, it's a very, uh, tricky topic. There are, um, there are different layers of, of divinity and they start with the experience of humanity and then they, they go up or down, <laughs> depending on where, which, which part you, you, 
you uh, direct your compass to, uh, they go up in, in levels of uh, exaltation. That is, you can, you can perceive the divine in the world, you can perceive the divine in nature, and then you can, and then you can start to become more focused and, per, and perceive the divine in the, the most exalted per, uh, part of yourself, the way you see yourself. And then eventually you can go even, even further after you, you got to that point, and you can start to see the divine in the everything, in the all. Um, I would say that this, that's, the, that's the specific moment whereby you move from a more magical perception of the war to a more mystical perception of the war. The two things, the, the two terms might seem the same, but there's a, there's a nuance there, and that is in, in, in a magical perspective, in magic, you, there's a direction. You are directing your, your experience in wherever you want to, to go, pretty much, whereby in a mystical experience, you become receptive, you become, you know, you become accepting of the all, you become in touch with the all. So that's, I, I understand that this is, this is pretty much like my, my understanding of this and the way I categorize it. But in many ways, this is something that you find in Telema as well, where at the beginning, Crowley speaks, you know, the Holy Guardian Angel has his own, his own Holy Guardian, like the best version of himself. He is a higher self, if we want to use uh, a pseudo-psychological term. And then eventually, as he, he gets older and maybe his understanding of it becomes uh, higher, he, and he gets to the point where you know, divinity becomes the all. In Telema, we have you know, this difference between the god, god forms or gods like Babylon and Therion, which are on a simple, simple level, they're like the divine masculine and divine feminine. But then they are, they are, they are even higher counterparts in Hadith and Nuit, which are, again, the divine masculine and divine feminine. But then again, at that level, it becomes more about the difference between the point and the circumference and the point re representing the, the potential of everything that could ever be, and, and the circumference representing the actualization of everything that could ever be. And so maybe here you can see the difference between a personal divine and a more, you know, um, macrocosmic divine, you know, omnicomprehensive, omnicomprehensive divine. Um, yeah, and we're ranting a little bit now. So. Well, no, I'm I'm fascinated by what you're saying, and I don't think you're ranting at all. I think I I think I'm following with what you're talking about. Um, you know, you're talking about a, a, a specific belief system here, and the idea being, if I'm following you, and I want to, and I'm asking if I am, in saying that, you know, when you're engaging in magic or ritual magic or the kind of thing where you're, you know, casting a spell or something, you're you're focusing directed will or attention to a goal it's a goal-oriented sort of activity whereas um and, and i'm not trying to i'm not i'm not trying to oversimplify i'm just trying to give a you know kind of this is where i'm tracking as opposed to like this mystical open experience where it's more of a passive you're observing or you're kind of getting a window into this powerhouse of divine whatever yeah. you want to call it I, I mean i suppose you could also say it's a spiritual experience or yeah you know it's like this sort of otherness that is life that is reality that is energy magic whatever 
you're kind of tapping into that and becoming aware of that. And that's like, oh, that maybe that's the glue that puts the universe together. I don't know. But whatever it is, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, that, that's is that, that, that that's I, abs- that's absolutely that's absolutely yeah. you're you're getting it. That's that's absolutely yeah. it. Absolutely great. Um, back to the to the Holy Guardian Angel. Yes, please. That that's that's a fundamental step, like in especially in Salama, because the knowledge and conversation with the Holy Guardian Angel is the step that allows each and everyone to discover their true wills to and then to start doing their true wills which again it's the the principal tenet of dilemma um without that there's nothing else <laughs> so right and for me it was fascinating to find out that um hubbard you know ha- claimed to 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 have a connection with a guardian spirit of some sorts Yes, he did. And I want to, I'd like to clear, I have a couple other questions about the concept of it. And then I want to dive into exactly what Hubbard said about this. Um, it is this, this so the, this is one of the first steps you said in, in this process of, of moving through these levels of, of indoctrination or education. Um, contacting this entity or this guardian angel or guardian spirit or whatever we want to call it. Um, we are talking about an actual entity, not just a nebulous sort of energy field or awareness. We're talking about being in touch with something that is like a divine figure of some kind. Um, now that's that, that's the problem right there. Because yeah, okay, as I say, good. because as as I told you, uh, Crowley had many conflicting ideas about what the guardian angel is, and uh, even today. Um, Telemites initiates have many conflicting ideas of what the Holy Guardian Angel is. Uh, some will tell you that yes, it's an external spirit that that you know uh, looks over you and you can contact them and talk to them like we are talking right now. Some mm-hmm. others will tell you that no, what you discover eventually is that it's a it's a it's it's a fraction of your of your of your ego. It's a higher level of uh, of your unconscious. Um, Personally, I believe I, where, where I stand right now, um, for me, the experience is all these things and none of these things at the same time. <laughs> sure. Uh, it, the, 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 the fact for me is that the proof in the pudding of, of the Holy Guardian Angel, if you want, is that it should be some sort of experience that teaches you, that tells you what to do next, how to react to whatever happens in your life, how to solve whatever problems that might or might not arise. And when it comes especially to magic, it, the Holy Guardian Angel is the, the only teacher. When you, you can join the OTO, you can join the AA, uh, you can join my Patreon, and I can tell you, you know, uh, how, the, the steps to get to that, to that, to, to the knowledge and conversation. But once you have, once you have unlocked that, there's no other teacher. There's you and your angel. If 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 somebody will see it as as a face that appears in a mirror while you're crying, and tells you things, that's fine. If it's a voice in your head, that's fine. If it's a hunch, uh, a feeling, that's fine. Um, and Crowley, uh, during during his life, he, he would write, "Oh no, the guardian angel is this. The guardian angel is this. The guardian angel." Like it's funny because he, he would go up and down, up and down, up and down. I think that in the end, he realized that. It's a, such a 
such a unique and personal experience, which is why I call it the personal divine, that it's down for each and everybody to, to come up to, to their, with their own understanding of what it is. But it's undeniable that there are some steps you can follow to, to get there. And once you, get, once you have it, you know it. There's no, there's, there's, there's no doubt about it. Um, so yeah, I mean, I guess this is where, again, where, where maybe Hubbard got the idea, but then deviate completely from it because... Well, yeah, yeah, it's kind of interesting. Let's kind of go over a little bit of this. Hubbard wrote a whole bunch of pages and pages and pages. They just go on and on and on of handwritten notes that were found by a, a Scientologist, a Sea Org member in the late 70s, early 80s. Um, I think it was I think it was late 70s. His name was Jerry Armstrong, and he mm -hmm. um, was in the Sea Org at the time. And he was uh, he had found Hubbard had a lot of stuff. Hubbard was I, I think in in other times Hubbard would almost have been considered a hoarder. He had a ton of his own stuff that he carried around with him all through the world. And these papers were found in his personal effects while he was still alive, but I think he forgot about them. Oh, wow. I don't think he expected these things to ever see the light of day. These were written in the 1940s. Um, we're not sure exactly where, um, but we do know that um, that they're, that they're, uh, that the Church of Scientology itself has not refuted the validity of these documents that are in Hubbard's writing uh, when they were submitted into an actual court of law. They had the opportunity oh, wow. to say, that's not Hubbard, and they didn't but, do that. And right? instead, they say, instead they say, no, 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 it, that, that's okay, that's interesting. <laughs> yeah, I think they thought it was just kind of going to go away because at the time it happened was in the 80s when no one knew the internet was coming. Yeah. At, right? And so I don't think they ever had a clue that this was going to get you know, a Wikipedia page of its own. And you Oh, can, by the way, you, I, I'm going to, I'm going to interrupt you there for a second, yeah. because honestly, this is the same problem or the same situation that you find in, with the OTO nowadays. The OTO has been, you know, desperate to, to keep secret what they do, because that's the, their only selling point, but they never envisioned like the, the internet. And, you know, like I said, it's like the, the OTO, the modern OTO incorporated in 85. So in the 85, nobody ever envisioned the fact that we could be, we could get everything, you know, basically at the flick of a switch. Much, so. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Well, it's pretty clear that Hubbard is writing these after getting involved in magic because he says so in the, or he talks, he refers to some of his magical work um, in the sections of this. Um, he writes, for example, that, uh, quote, that my magical work is powerful and effective. This is one of his affirmations, you know, that I believe in my gods and spiritual things, that the numbers 7, 25, and 16 are not unlucky or evil for me. So he's got these sort of things that he's writing down and, um, you know, that masturbation was no sin or crime, um, et cetera, et cetera. So then we go into um, him talking about various and multiple physical problems that he had, which I will touch on in a, in a little bit as to why I think this is important, is um, your eyes are getting progressively better. He had very bad eyesight. 
They become bad when you use them as an excuse to, to escape the Naval Academy. You have no reason to keep them bad, he says. He's talking about his own eyes. He's keeping them bad, he says. Your stomach trouble you used as an excuse to keep the Navy from punishing you. Your hip is a pose. You have a sound hip. It never hurts. Your shoulder never hurts. Well, clearly he's writing these things because they do. They do, obviously. Right? Um, your foot was an alibi. The injury is no longer needed. So he's literally, you know, sort of struggling with these, with these, these beliefs that he's causing his own physical problems because he's faking yeah. it to get out of stuff. But then it's becoming real. And I, without getting into the complexities of Scientology belief, let me please just say for any uh, any former Scientologists out there, yes, Hubbard was surfacking. <laughs> that's a, that's a technical term in Scientology, and uh, it's became a very prominent part of Scientology methodology later. That people would do this; they would create false injuries or false mm -hmm. sicknesses to get out of something, and then get stuck with it for real. Wow! <laughs> so okay. this was a big thing in Scientology, right? So specifically, now getting to the guardian angel, there's a whole, there's some, some. Um, I'm going to read you all of the um, parts of that, or some of the parts. Yeah, here they are. All the quotes regarding the guardian mm -hmm. angel. This is all from the. Um, they were all called in the uh, Wikipedia page on this, and it says. In 1945, Parsons had written to Aleister Crowley, Jack Parsons wrote to Crowley, to inform him that Hubbard had become his magical partner, quote-unquote, and described Hubbard's beliefs. Uh, he says, this is Parsons saying, from some of his experiences, I deduced that he is in direct touch with some higher intelligence, possibly his guardian angel. He describes his angel as a beautiful winged woman, with red hair, whom he calls the Empress, and who has guided him through his life and saved him many times. Now, let's all remember that the Empress is also a tarot card. Yeah. Hubbard appears to have continued to believe in his guardian angel well after leaving Parsons Circle and wrote in his affirmations, quote, Nothing can intervene between you and your guardian. She cannot be displaced because she is too powerful. She does not control you. She advises you. The most thrilling thing in your life is your love and consciousness of your guardian. This, now, this was a man who had two kids back home, a wife. Uh, he was setting up with another girl in Parsons Place. I mean, and this was yeah. the most thrilling thing in his life was his love and consciousness of his guardian. She has copper red hair long braids, a lovely Venusian face, a white gown belted with jade squares. She wears gold slippers. I'm sure some of this might, some of the symbology yeah, absolutely. might be. So there, there's, right. all, there's, all, there's all symbology that, that makes sense, you know. Uh, yeah. It's almost like he, um, he knew it and he write, wrote it down in order to, to make a more convincing image if in many ways. Um, I think what's interesting to me when I look at the affirmation is we can go two ways about it. And that is, one is that he was genuinely engaging with magical practices. And like I say, like that 
because there are specific magical practices you can do and there you can repeat, you can teach in order for people to get to the knowledge and conversation with the Holy Guardian Angel. Um, and let's say that since he was engaging with Parsons in various magical workings, when uh, Parsons writes to Crowley and say he is my magical partner, that's a specific reference because Crowley used to have magical partners as well, both men and women. That and he would with with them he would you know enact various kinds of rituals from time to time of, of sexual nature in order to contact higher higher intelligences. Now, contacting higher intelligence is important in magic because that's how you get further teaching, how you get to do magic better, pretty much. As I said before, the main teacher is your holy guardian angel, but you can work with your holy guardian angel and with other magicians in order to get better communications, uh, better informations, better systems. Uh, a famous, a famous, uh, example of this is the John Dee and, and Kelly receiving, you know, the Enochian system from, from the Enochian angels in the 1600s. And we're talking about, you know, historical figure there. It, it, it happened across the history of magic. Um, and what's interesting, again, in the affirmations of Hubbard is that either he is generally engaging with the system and, and having, you know, receiving ideas, receiving visions, receiving experiences, or what might be also interesting to consider is that since Hubbard is a con man and is a swindler, he maybe was actually writing these things down to convince Jack Parsons that he was, he was having you know, a real magical experience. Because something that the listeners needs to know, a specific um, specific thing that each ma magical teacher will, will, will teach is that the student mu must keep a magical diary. And that's a simple diary, a diary where you write down everything. Um, this is especially true in Telema because one, Telema wants to, while, you know, while not being science, as I said at the beginning, wants to try and apply the scientific method as much as possible in this and and the 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 basic the basics of the scientific method is you know put together a theory test the theory write down uh the uh, you know whatever comes from the theory that comes from from that experiment and then you know come back to it and see what it looks like um from most of, most of the listeners will will not believe it but the reality here is that magic is is not very much different than going to lab and test other other theories it's just that of course it's it's not science it's something different uh but the practice of the magical diary is fundamental and parsons would have told no doubt would have told hubbard okay show me your magical diary uh, i taught you this series of practices what came out of it because that's what Parsons would have done with his own teachers Parsons would have done with crowley directly parsons and crowley never met Crowley never went to Pasadena, never met Hubbard, never met Parsons, but they, Parsons was in touch with Crowley. Hubbard was never in touch with Crowley, despite what he, what he claimed afterward, that they were good friends. Not at all. In fact, in, there's a surviving letter from uh, Alistair Crowley to Carl Germer, which was the leader of the OTO in the, in, in, in the United States at the time, that kind of you know, depicts both Parsons and Hubbard in very, uh, let's say, less than nice terms. <laughs> so yes, that. I've seen that letter, actually. And he, okay. he he says, I think Crowley says flat out that it looks like Hubbard's trying to con him. 
Carson. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Um, So even from that distance, he saw through Hubbard's nonsense. Absolutely, because again, in many ways, we can we we have to admit that you know, uh, like the similar sees the similar. Crowley was a bit of a swindler himself, so he definitely should have could have seen you know the same attitude in in uh, in Hubbard. That's but, right. You know, so, I think it also speaks a little bit to Hubbard's skill and manipulation on a one-on-one level that in person, absolutely. he was taking Parsons for a ride. And he was. There's no question about it. We're, you know, we'll, we'll, we, can, we will discuss the seriousness with which Hubbard might have approached this. But, the, but make no mistake, the whole time he was taking Parsons for a ride. And Parsons never saw it until it was too late. Crowley saw it from a distance very clearly. So I think that speaks a little bit yeah. to Hubbard's ability yeah. to manipulate people, you know. Oh, but, but there's, no, there's no doubt to me. I mean, Hubbard was a master manipulator. Uh, yeah. Absolutely. Absolute, it was great at it. Uh, I mean, if Scientology still exists to this day, it's because he, he managed to con uh, yeah. many, many people in ways that maybe, like I said, Crowley maybe, maybe wanted. I do think from time to time if... Crowley would have been happy to see, you know, Thelema become Scientology at some point. In many ways, that's what he wanted, like something that was became almost mainstream. And Scientology is not mainstream, but everybody knows about Scientology. At least they have heard about it. Yep. Trust yep. me. No one, no one, no one knows about Thelema uh, apart, right. apart, you know, the very few people that are really invested in it. Uh, right. <laughs> so yeah, it's true. So you know, like back to the affirmations. Uh, I can, I can, I cannot tell you if Hubbard, you know, was doing the work as it's uh, as we say, or it was it was just like writing it down. It's definitely true that it 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 feels real. As in, uh, it's uh, sorry, not feels. That's wrong. It sounds real. It sounds like like all everything you read in the affirmations is almost ticks all the boxes. Like okay, you know, this is it. Like that's it. It's almost like the the perfect magical diary. Like if if one of my students would send send me like a diary, like that's like oh wow, that's uh, that's a lot of work. Well done. But it feels like almost too well done. <laughs> you know. <laughs> I get it. I get what you're saying with this. And let's conjecture a little bit because it's kind of fun. And here's what I here's how I look at this as a former Scientologist and somebody who spent a lot of time trying to figure Hubbard's head out. I, I'm not, you know, I'm not saying I've got it all figured out, but here's here's where I'm coming from on it is uh, he definitely makes it clear. This is all pre-Scientology. Hubbard's not trying to impress anyone. Maybe there's an audience of one here with Jack Parsons, mm-hmm. perhaps, or perhaps he really meant it. We know for a fact that Hubbard did have um, uh, an ulcer, he had conjunctivitis, he had um, a hip problem, he had an eye problem. We know these things are true. We know he did not suffer from any war wounds following World War II. Nothing significant really happened to him. He never really saw combat, but boy, could he tell a whole lot of tall tales about all the combat he saw in all the theaters everywhere. And ah, bah, bah. You know, he talked a good talk, but he really didn't have anything. But he was a troubled guy, and he was also a bit of a storyteller, pathological liar, actually, and serial philanderer. So we know those things were all true, and we know that he had zero interest in going back home to his wife and kids after the war. So he ends up in Parsons' place. Um, we know that he practiced sex magic with Parsons. Oh, and by the way, while we're, while I, I'm sure I, I have not really asked you any hard questions about that. 
let let me segue real fast and do that because it might speak to this a little bit. Parsons and Hubbard were engaged in activity that want that an objective observer might look at and say, okay, there's something freaky going on there, like oh. homosexual activity, uh, uh, blood, semen. I mean, what the hell were they doing, and what is that? connected to I, I should have asked you about this earlier so since it just is coming to mind now what's up with that and is that something dare i ask is that something you engage in or what what is uh what is that? so uh lots of people discover thelema because of sex magic or what they think they know about sex magic what they read about sex magic um to try, uh, let me let me try to explain it as easier as I can. Sex magic is a practice whereby you use the the energized enthusiasm of orgasm in order to fix an idea into the in, to fix an idea so that that idea can come into fruition. Okay, mm -hmm. uh, by doing that, it's not just about you know having sex and that happen because it's not just you know having orgies and that happen. But the, you, you like like with everything else in magic, you must train for it. And uh, once you once you do it, it's not about your pleasure or even the pleasure of the other person. But it's more about you know using that energized enthusiasm in order to magically create something. As I said before, this is not science, so I'm, I'm not even going to try to pre to pretend to say you know <laughs> that much gonna, is clear. <laughs> yes, I'm going to explain you how how it is up. This uh, right. I, I, but is this something that I, I engage with? Yes, it's something I engage with. Yeah, that's that's what you learn at the at the higher levels of OTO, higher degrees of OTO. That's what you learn at the uh, higher grades of the AA. But where where Parsons and uh, Hubbard engaging into this? Absolutely, yes, yes. It means having sex. It means uh, possibly mixing the fluids. Uh, and by mix, maybe then ingesting the fluids or using the fluids for of the inter intercourse onto a talisman. There's many different ways you can you can get to do this. Uh, Crowley used to one one of the reason the other reason why Crowley really invested into the OTO. One, as we said before, because it was Paramazonic, Freemasonry was popular at the time. He thought he would, he would you know, get like a vehicle for the promulgation of the lemma. The other is because the OTO had specific secrets of sex magic, specific ways of engaging with sex magic. And, um, and that's definitely something that, so as it like um, Agape Lodge number two in Pasadena was the only real lodge of the OTO. At the in, working at the time, so of course they would engage in these things. What they were trying to do, basically, what we would come up uh, called the the Babylon working. What they were trying to do, uh, they were trying to contact the goddess Babylon, which, in an incredibly simplified way, I can tell you, it's the divine feminine. And they were trying to use sex magic to embody the goddess Babylon onto like an, a real human being. Um, Parsons would then, Parsons and Abbott would then go on and claim that the operation was success, successful. And the goddess Babylon was eventually incarnated into Marjorie Cameron, which became uh, Hubbard's, Hubbard's uh, second wife, third wife. Third wife. Oh, uh, Parsons, I think. Sorry, Hubbard, sorry, Hubbard, sorry, yeah. sorry, Parsons, Parsons, not Hubbard. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Uh, so yeah, I mean, um, since 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 you know, since you led me into this segue, yeah, it's it, it, they were doing freaky stuff, 
and it's part of it's part of of the more advanced uh, practices uh, of magic. Uh, and um, for for those who maybe you know listening to this, this is so weird. This is so weird. This is the same, just you know, under different cultural lenses than certain practices of Indian tantra, the idea of you know using the sex the sex act in order to rejuvenate the body to achieve deeper stages uh, deeper states of uh, consciousness um there are, the cultural lenses matter so in many ways since the 80s and since sex magic became more of a thing you discuss again the 80s onward uh then there's stories of people that went into ashrams in india trying to you know discover the real uh, roots of the Western sex magic back back into the Tantra and coming out incredibly disappointed because they, they find out that there's little sex and it's all about maybe not, not eating meat and not eating fish. <laughs> but yes, right, the, right. Like the, the, root, the root of sex magic is the, the Indian Tantras. And um, at the end of the day is a way of using the energy of our orgasm, the energies of sex in order to achieve deeper states of consciousness, deeper uh, stages of consciousness. Okay, I get that. And um, would it be used or could you conceive of it being used in a way to heal oneself? I mean, could Hubbard have conceivably been doing this with the idea that maybe his ulcers would go away or maybe his eyesight would improve or he would stop feeling physically horrible all the time? Would that be a reasonable idea of what he might go into that with? Absolutely, yes. Um, okay. Crowley tried for for many years to to sell the 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 supreme secret of the OTO, that is sex magic, as a way of cure all, like the mm. the the stone of the wise, the the, the elixir of eternal life. Um, I have grounds to believe that Crowley did believe it because, again. This is something that you imagine, like the, the the times. Science is not as advanced as it is now, and uh, people t people tend to believe these things more deeply. Let's put it like that. At the time, Crowley definitely believed that the secrets, the supreme secret of the OTO, the sex magical secret of the OTO, could cure yourself. Crowley died of pneumonia, so the reality there is that. Oops. Even oops, you know. <laughs> yeah. oh. Okay, I, I've man. Yeah. I, I, I've been working sex magical uh, practices most of most of my life now. I mean, I'm 42, let's say 20 years, and I can tell you that they they put you in a better state. They make you feel healthy, uh, but I still have my eyesight. It's bad. <laughs> That's what it is. Yeah, you still got glasses uh, on. Yeah, so. ex exactly. Uh, some someone actually, it, it, it's funny until it's not. But I'm gonna I'm gonna say it because it, it, it makes it makes you think. Somebody recently posted, um, um, like exhorted the the leaders of the the current OTO, the OTO Incorporate in California. Say, do, given the, the the times we're living and the situations around the world. Since you have the, su the supreme secret that will cure all, why are you not using to, to address the pandemic? Of course, no reply was forthcoming. <laughs> so, exactly. So, so, you know, 
Cook, did Abbott believe that he could get like the supreme secret that could cure his ulcers, cure his? Yes, I, I believe so. I believe he was drawn to it in order to, first of all, set himself right, and then maybe find a way to sell it to other people. <laughs> so. Well, I think that that's actually not far off the beam because, um, and, and of course, I, I have to comment on the dearth of, uh, you know, faith healers in hospitals right now. Uh, hello, uh, you know, anybody, I mean, you're, you, if you're, if you really got it, now is the time to go make a fortune. I, I mean, if you want to prove to the world, you know, now is the time. Yeah, absolutely. Same with a uh, Dianeticist and all these guys. They're all just, you know, it's just crickets from all of these people. Um, anyway, in terms of uh, Hubbard's motivations, okay, so having set the scene and having just confirmed that with you, um, I very much believe that he was a willing participant in in the sex magic rituals with Parsons because he was looking for some kind of cure to his to what was ailing him. He was. Um, he was telling the VA the whole time that this was all going down about his, you know, numer and, he, and for years following, he would be telling the VA about his physical woes and his troubles and his problems and how he was not able to produce, you know, at the same rate he was able to pre-war and all of that. So I think there was some conning going on there and some, oh, woe is me. But I also think that he, from based on what he was writing and what we know about him, um, you know, he felt like he was suffering from some stuff and he thought maybe this was an outlet to deal with it. I, it may or may not be, in fact, that he might have even gone all in. I I have a question. You mentioned this being this the sex magic stuff being at the highest levels. You know, Hubbard was only at Parsons Place for a few months. Is mm -hmm. it conceivable that somebody could rise in the ranks that quickly to be exposed to that level of information that, that fast? Um, absolutely yes, it is conceivable okay. because because the the ladder never really existed. In fact, the 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 strict ladder has been uh, uh, implemented only from eighty five onwards. I would say even actually the nineties onwards with the the reconstructed um, OTO that we have nowadays. At the time of Crowley, you would have like you know a series of nine degrees which in fact are 21 because there's there's sub-degrees here and there. But Crowley would, um, would initiate everyone to the ninth degree, the top degree, if people would show proof that they knew what was the, pro the, the practice, what was the process. And since Crowley was speaking to people that were, they were like all very like nerds in many way of magic. So they would like go and research and go and practice. The case was for many, many people that were just, I don't want to say fast-tracked to nine degree, but that's that's the spirit. So it is absolutely conceivable that, uh, you know, Hubbard would come and would study it and then would show to, to Parsons, say, hey, you know, this is what it's, it's about sex, right? And, and this is how you do it. And, and Parsons would say, yeah, so you're now like a member of the sovereign sanctuary of the noses of the nine degree. And you are a holy, holy father, <laughs> and then, then now we will, we can work together. So it's absolutely true. Um, what happened in the in the modern OTO is that since they, the people at the top right now, Bill Breeze, James Wasserman, these people know they have they have nothing. They just they just inherited some papers. They they bought copyrights of Crowley, and they've been trying to make a living out of it since the the eighties. 
but also they know that there's a lot of people that want the experience. So what they went, they, uh, they compartmentalize and they structuralize as it was supposed to be on paper, but it never was because the, like I said, the OTO nowadays, the OTO that I joined and the OTO, the OTO that I left and that, that now I'm so critical of, it's in many ways is doing what Croy envisioned to a degree. But the reality there is that there's no need because once you learn what it is, you got it. <laughs> there's no need to, to go through all, the, through all the, 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 the prologue pretty much. Got it. Totally get it on that. Um, okay, so okay, so a conceivable timeline then is Hubbard goes in, meets meets Parsons, starts finding out about this stuff, or already has some hint of it, goes all in. Uh, we're thinking Hubbard, you know, I'm thinking Hubbard probably had, um, you know, a real motivation to try to to try to make this work because he went all in. I mean, he did stuff that you know your run of the mill person wouldn't necessarily consider doing. No, no, with with Parsons out in the desert, and mm-hmm. uh, they can do this Babylon working. Crowley, by the way, happened to think this was nuts. Yeah, he <laughs> thought they were crazy for what they were doing. But Parsons was a rule breaker. He was not somebody who followed standards. He was doing his own, laying his, his own, own track, so to speak. That was his life. That's how he did it. He was know? following. He was following his own will. <laughs> yes, exactly. That was his deal. And I'm sure Hubbard. Also, from what I was reading earlier from Excalibur, I was that was from 1938, years before this, and I think this was, um, you know, Hubbard thinking that this guardian angel and this whole circumstance was just had, you know, was some kind of a karmic fate sort of thing for him that he just happened to walk into this. This was going to be perfect, and he goes all in. Well, guess what? It didn't cure a goddamn thing. He still had bad eyes. He still had bad this, bad that. And Hubbard was nothing if not results-oriented. He definitely gives that attitude through all of his lectures. He's all about, I don't care why this works. I just want it to work. You know, we don't have to wonder why. We don't have to wonder how. We just need to know it works. So he was very taka-taka-taka. And I think that... I don't think that was a fake Connie thing. I think that's how he was. I think he was a very impatient man. So a few months, he gives it a go, doesn't work. Maybe this whole time he's setting up the con, or maybe he just goes, well, this didn't work. Uh, fuck this guy, and I'm just going to take his money and take his woman. <laughs> and that's basically, however that sequence happened, that was the result. After a few months, Hubbard was like, okay, great. And uh, they do this stuff, and then Hubbard ends up uh, taking off with uh, Sarah, um, and which was Jack's Jack girl Parsons. when, when, yeah, when yeah. Hubbard got there. Mm-hmm. But, you know, Parsons was all about preaching polyamory and free love. It wasn't like it was they were married. And that always was kind of, you know. I always remember that, that Sarah was the, the younger sisters of, of Parsons' Helen, like Parsons' wife helen oh so, that's right that's right yeah i mean that's right they, they were definitely into into swapping and uh, yes. changing so I, w- I would say that in many way uh we have proof that you know parsons was was not completely okay with sarah living but he he, he, he kind of accepted it because it was yeah. it was he was not okay about uh, about you know the swindle and, and losing the money so yep. 
you know, the story the story goes that eventually he tracked them down uh, in Florida, I think, and he yep. invokes Barzabel, the, the angel of Mars, and lo and behold, they, they have to come back because a terrible storm. Uh, so, so, you know, that's that, that happened. <laughs> it's it's you, actually uh, funny that it did. They were out. Uh, yeah. They were trying to sail away. There was a storm. They had to come back. Yeah. And Parsons had tracked them down to Florida from California. <laughs> And he Absolutely. took him to court, and he actually got some of his money back. And, you know, and that was that. Something that I wanted to uh, to say to you for a second is, like, you yeah. mentioned that, ha- that Hubbard was you know, the results-oriented. Um, let's, you know, doesn't matter if this is true or not. Let's, 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 let's get something out of it. Yes. It's funny, it's funny because that's something else that he got from Crowley. <laughs> because in, oh. Lib- in Liber O which is uh, one of Crowley's more practical exercises. It is said, and I'm going to read, in this book it is spoken of Sephiroth and the paths, of spirits of conjurations, of gods, spheres, planes, and many other things which might or might not exist. It's immaterial whether these things exist or not. By doing certain things, certain results happen. So, you know, that's oh something else. Oh, my God, <laughs> Hubbard, it was it's almost word for word. I'm telling you, almost word for word from some of Hubbard's writings. So, you know, you can say, yeah. Uh, <laughs> that's every a, time. That's a... <laughs> every time I think I finally found something of Hubbard's. Nope. It was <laughs> from someone else. <laughs> well, you know, let's say, let's say that he, he was very good at getting inspired. Yes, he was. Yes, he was very, he was a very inspired child. Let's put it yeah, that absolutely. way. Well, listen, Marco, this, um, have we, is there anything else on this topic that you think we, that I missed here? No, I, I think, I think we did a good job at, uh, you know, laying the land of the connections yeah. between Telema and uh, magic and Scientology. I mean, it's kind of, kind of, kind of evident to me that, Yes, Scientology has a lot of inspiration. Got through, got a lot of inspiration from Telema. Got a lot of inspiration from Magic. It is true that they're not one and the same. They diverge in many points. But but Hubbard Hubbard got his ideas from Crowley. That's no denying for me. Yeah, there really isn't. There really isn't. And I I really want to thank you for helping me to sort and clarify and figure out some of this stuff because you really have helped me a lot uh, personally in my own understanding of of how Scientology is an occult practice in its in its core principles and what it's what it's really all about and how it was put together is straight out of the occult now it's developed into this whole mainstream well not mainstream but you know system and it's very institutionalized and it's got all these you know very strict rules and guidelines now which is very different from how thalema and magic is practiced so it's so it's not same same anymore but its roots come straight out of this and and uh and are very, very, very much uh, still all about absolutely. this stuff, you know. Absolutely, absolutely. So, absolutely. so thank you, thank you very much for well, for taking the time. Thank you, Chris. It's been it's been it's been very good. It's been very good for me as well. I mean, I, I learned a lot about things that I I always I was always curious about, and now now, now I've seen it pretty much. Yeah, there's. I think it will, will be always be interesting to eventually find out if if we'll ever be able to find out if you know Hubbard was an actual serious stu- student of magic for a while, or if he was just doing it to 
to do the right thing to show Parsons and Curly that he was you know, he was onto it. But I, maybe we'll never find out. <laughs> so. You know, it's so it's so hard. The best we've got are these affirmations, and we've got Parsons' leftover diaries or remaining, you know, his the journals he had, which is why we know he was a little jealous when Hubbard took off with Sarah and stuff. And true enough, you know. That's that's I I don't know that there's going to be any more revelations. So you know, conjecture is all we've got at this point. But I, I think we've got some pretty good ideas of what went down there and why. And had I known any of this when I was in Scientology, I would yeah. have looked at L. Ron Hubbard very differently. Which yeah. is I'm positive why the church works so hard to. You know, they they can't deny this is what's so funny is they literally tell bald faced lies about his war record, his academic achievements. But on this, they can't deny that he was at Parsons place and that these things yeah, they, did happen. He did. The church just says they whitewash it with this fantasy that he was there as an undercover operative for yeah, law that, that, enforcement. Yeah, that, 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 that's, that's what I heard as well. Like, he, he was working to to save a young woman from a, from a, from a satanist. And it's like, first of yes. all, Kalama, Kalama is not satanic. Uh, <laughs> whatever. I mean, it's like, it, it, it's funny. It's a nice spin, but it's not the real the reality. Exactly. It's just more spin of spin of spin. So... So there you go. So there's there's some history there for you folks. I, I hope that this was clarifying. I hope this was illuminating. I hope we gave, you know, a window into this. This was not an attempt to break down all of Thalema or all of the OTO. It was an attempt to show what it's basically about, where it basically comes from, and how Scientology fits into that and eventually actually came from it. So I think we did that job. And Marco, I, again, thank you for helping me with that. Thank you so much, Chris. It's been a pleasure to be to be here on, on your on your network, and uh, that's it. Thank you so much. <laughs> Absolutely, no problem, man. Folks, questions, comments, feedback, good, bad, or sideways, leave them in the comment section here on YouTube or at sensiblyspeaking.com. Okay, folks, see you next week. Bye bye. <laughs>